Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 35 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Landrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And last week's episode, needless to say, was a very heavy episode for obvious reasons. It was definitely an episode for reflection on the implications of something that came to an end after 20 years, which is the majority of both of our lifespans. We're going to try to be a little more lighthearted in this episode for you guys. And as it turns out, there are, in fact, some very good things to report on in the news cycle. Of course, the main story, the main topic of the day is still Afghanistan. People are talking about Afghanistan still heavily in the mainstream press. But we are going to be focusing on other issues. And there is some, there's both good news and there's some really funny stories. This came up very suddenly last night. We weren't originally going to talk about this, but we just had to address this. Because this calls back to a previous episode where we discussed one person in particular... Oh, Christy Nome, Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota. We previously reviewed an interview that Governor Nome did with Tucker Carlson, where he absolutely roasted her and held nothing back over her cowardly decision to veto a bill that her legislature passed that would have banned men from competing in women's sports under the guise of transgenderism. So this was trending on Twitter last night. When you see Matt Walsh trending on Twitter, normally you would not think it's for good reasons. Now, normally you would think, of course, I mean, he's Matt Walsh. He's with the Daily Wire. We talked about this in our, our previous episode. We talked about Ben Shapiro and why I can't stand as a whole. I don't like Daily Wire and don't trust Daily Wire because of Ben Shapiro. And Matt Walsh is one of the top guys at Daily Wire. is one of Ben Shapiro's top guys. But uh, he said something quite hilarious, to put it bluntly, on the latest episode of his show. And this is what got Matt Walsh trending on Twitter. He's referring to Christy Nome. But, you know, you put... 50 pounds on her and another 20 years. I don't think she gets any of the hype. <laughs> that when I saw this, I was like, what? People have been talking for a long time about the Matt Walsh redemption arc, saying that he went from total, like, you know, normie neocon to really hardened, like, punished Matt Walsh meme. Like, he was really, you know, became uh, bitter after the everything that happened last year with the race riots and the COVID lockdowns and the voter fraud. And now he's really outspoken and, and pretty edgy. Like that is some, that's some Milo level stuff. That's stuff that Milo would have said back in the day. And, and I mean, of course, to be fair, I think he is correct that her being attractive, we talked about this when we talked about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. Being attractive in politics is a big plus. And it is for men, too. This is something I always wanted to make as a little addendum when we said about AOC. It, and it's not young. misogynistic. That's the thing that uh, a lot of people misunderstand. If it goes both ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, for men, the, one of the most famous examples in American history, 1960, the presidential election of JFK versus Nixon. Even though Nixon was only, I think, like three or four years older than Kennedy, he wasn't some old guy. But in that famous, the first ever televised presidential debate, Kennedy was all polished. He had makeup on. His hair was all done to perfection and he looked clean and neat. And then Nixon, who had spent the whole day campaigning, he had like a five o'clock shadow. He was sweaty. He didn't put any makeup on. So the lights reflected off of his head. It just it wasn't a good look for him. So it, it goes both ways. And that absolutely is a huge reason. Again, Christy Nome being attractive and the speech she gave before President Trump's Mount Rushmore Fourth of July address last year. Those were the two. That speech was the thing that catapulted her to fame. Everybody, you know, found out who she was through that. And subsequently, kind of like Nikki Haley, oh yeah, she's good looking. She should be our front runner in 2024 if Trump wins re-election. But then of course she backed down on the transgenderism stuff and she's backed down on a whole lot of other things that people have, most people have seen her for what she is. So I will say as slight criticism of Matt Walsh, this is kind of beating a dead horse. Like nobody thinks she's going to be a front runner ever again. Now, just like Nikki Haley, no one really thinks she's going to be a front runner. DeSantis has kind of taken that non-Trump mantle for now. But nevertheless, just got to say this real quick. Christy Nome retweeted a 35-second clip, which ended with that, port, that portion, and she said, 
instead of engaging in a debate about the proper role of government and how it isn't conservative to tell people how to do business, at Matt Walsh blog, stooped to horrible misogyny. Eyes up here, Matt. It's hilarious. Well, we already had that debate in 2016. That's why Donald Trump was nominated as the Republican nominee. Conservatives already had that debate on the proper role of government and business. I mean, one of the things that spurred conservatives, especially a lot of conservative Christians to turn out for Trump, was the debacle with Mike Pence in Ohio. I don't know if you remember, I think it was 2015 when uh, corporations turned out in mass against Mike Pence and basically shut down the state of Indiana. Oh, for the religious I, freedom. Oh, yeah. So I think I said Ohio. It, I meant, I meant right, to say yeah. Indiana. Right. Yeah, it was for the religious freedom thing. Thing. And a lot of people, they they realize that corporations are not their friend. And even though Donald Trump was a big government conservative, they turned out for him. So we already had this debate and her side lost. She's basically with Jeb Bush on these issues. And uh, we don't, you know, the average conservative doesn't want the uh, the cartels, uh, the, uh, the corporate cartels enforcing vaccine mandates. I mean, they don't want people to be put out of their jobs, not be allowed to put foot on the table if they can't, if they're not willing to have a vaccine. So this is just, this is completely out of touch with, yeah. with people. We've already had this debate. She wants to have this debate. Okay, we had the debate. Your side lost. Exactly. And the whole libertarian, oh, just let the free market work everything out, bro. The Ben Shapiro, again, something that Matt Walsh's boss would say, that side lost. We know now that the free market doesn't help. The free market creates big tech monopolies and COVID vaccine mandates and everything. And that was the one other thing Matt Walsh said in addition to that, the argument of whether or not we should use government power or let the free markets do their thing. He also said people are sick and tired of Republicans who do nothing but talk about what they'll do when they're in the minority, they always say, oh, can you imagine if the roles were reversed? Here's what we're going to do to stop to stop what's happening, to stop those Democrats. Buy my book, buy my book. Mm -hmm. They always write books about what they're going to do. And then once they get into power, we saw this with Trump, with the first two years of Trump. Trump was elected, Republicans in both houses of Congress. They had the power to do everything. And other than tax cuts and slightly repealing Dodd-Frank, they did nothing with their power. And Matt Walsh said that's people that's the kind of Republican people are sick of. Well, and just one last thing on the Christy Nome topic, Vanity Fair did a really good article on this issue. They pointed out that Nome has been quote unquote standing up to Joe Biden, claiming that she's not going to allow him to enact vaccine passports or vaccine mandates in the state. And the author of this article in Vanity Fair said this is a requirement that Joe Biden wouldn't even be enforcing. And he's pointing out that it wouldn't be Biden enforcing the mandates. It would be the corporations who employ South Dakotans. But she's just grandstanding. She knows that place. She knows the base doesn't want mandates. And so she's saying, I'm not going to let President Biden enforce vaccination in our state. Well, he's not wanting to do that. He's basically turned it over to the corporations. Yeah, it's pandering to low information voters who just blame Biden for everything. It's like that story you said a while ago about, you know, people who believe, oh, but Biden is canceling Dr. Seuss books. Like, yeah, no, that, that's not exactly. Biden. Biden has nothing to do with that. But yeah. Noam knows. Noam exactly knows what she's doing. And again, she knows her chances drop significantly after the transgender thing when a lot of Trump supporters did turn on her for that. She's She does want to run for president one day. Absolutely. So she is going to try to do everything she can to build that base back up. Well, speaking of corporate cartels, the news media, that's the, oh. big, that's the biggest private sector corporate cartel we have in this country. Exactly. Um, this is one area where I would say we definitely need a public option. So the Associated Press, the AP, has long been known as the gold standard in journalism. And the reason for this was because they came about during the Mexican War. They were a consortium of New York newspapers, and the purpose was so they could write copy and the New York newspapers would then put it out because they had correspondence on the front lines, whereas the New York newspapers couldn't afford to put people there. And this is the model that would be followed in every war after that. The AP would, had correspondence all over the world. They were able to write copy, and the newspapers who subscribed to their services were then able to use that copy and publish it in their newspapers. The AP took off dramatically after the Civil War and became the gold standard in objective journalism because at the time, every newspaper was partisan. 
Well, the AP had to appeal to both sides because they had subscribers from both parties. The AP has drifted increasingly left over the past decade as more and more millennials have gone into journalism and shifted the dynamic so far to the left that it's unrecognizable to anyone with any standard of, of objectivity. So, for example, in 2013, it dropped the term illegal immigrant from its AP style book after several major news outlets did the same. But even, I mean, think about this is like, this is 2013. Even Janet Napolitano criticized the decision. She said, quote, they are immigrants who are here illegally. That's an illegal immigrant. This is Janet Napolitano saying that. So at the time, this was controversial even on the left. And I remember at the time, a lot of people were criticizing the New York Times whenever they dropped illegal immigrants. And of course, the people who read the New York Times are liberals and they themselves were not, they were not happy about them dropping the term illegal immigrant. Well, it got, whenever Trump got elected, the AP just went off the rails. I remember the first time I noticed this was whenever Trump was criticizing European countries for not contributing enough to NATO. He went over there, he was at the NATO summit. He was talking about how countries aren't contributing their fair share. The AP writer... After he quoted Trump in the next sentence, in a one-sentence paragraph, he wrote, that's not how it works. And he didn't really explain how that's not how it works. But we had reached this point in American journalism where most of the journalists were young. They were indoctrinated in progressivism. They were indoctrinated to slander and criticize conservatives and treat them as pariahs and treat them as Neanderthals. And so when Trump said or did anything, it didn't matter if they – in their gut feeling if they agreed with him. Like, for instance, when Trump was criticizing the Iraq wars, Trump was attacking wind power for killing birds. This is something environmentalists obviously have long been concerned about, about how windmills kill birds. Well, they made him out to look like a buffoon. The fact that they you know, said windmills, the, they cited some scientists who said that the percentage of birds who are killed by windmills is so small and insignificant, even though it was something that they, as liberals, as good liberals, would be concerned about. But this this one sentence paragraph, that's not how it works in a straight news article, really solidified to me just how far the AP had drifted. It's not just a matter of left-wing drift. It's a matter of unprofessionalism. Well, it also sounds like clearly a changing of the guard. You said that a lot of new people coming in, like new millennials coming in and replacing the old guard. That, to me, I think you just answered a question I was going to ask at some point, but 2013, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the same year that news first broke of the scandal where the Obama Justice Department under Eric Holder had spied on the Associated Press, had tapped several of their reporters' phones. And you would think that certainly mm -hmm. after going through that, that unprecedented breach of First Amendment rights, and I think also Fifth Amendment rights, that the AP would be one of the most vocal outlets in terms of staying neutral and calling out big government regardless of which party is in power. John Caldera, an opinion columnist for the Denver Post, wrote January 3rd, 2020, he was talking about how liberals have their own style book. Can you pointed to the AP because the AP, of course, publishes their style book that sets the standard for journalists and corporations. He said, journalists have no idea how their work is perceived by a very sizable percentage of Americans. It talks about at a recent wedding perception, he ran to an elderly lady who was very polite and she just said, F the media whenever he brought up the media. And he pointed out that if you talk to the average journalist, they're very polite, very professional, but you try to point to them how normal everyday Americans feel about their profession. It's like 15% of Republicans that actually have a favorable opinion of the media, and they become defensive, and they angrily suggest that it's you or the people who are criticizing the media that are the problem. He pointed out that the reason why there's this groupthink among journalists is because of the AP style book. So, for instance, we talk about language. We talk Whenever we talk about critical race theory, we talk about language on this show, how liberals – well, not liberals. Leftists will use language to manipulate people's feelings, people's emotions, and they use words that people understand but don't understand the meaning behind them. So uh, Caldera points out, he says, for reporters, it recommends avoiding terms like illegal alien, quote, use illegal only to refer to an action, not a person. Remember the, the placards, no person is illegal? Well, this is straight out of the progressive agenda. They're not being – they're not even trying to show a pretense of objectivity. 
He said the AP instead suggests using terms like undocumented. And he points out another point with the transgender ideology. He said the AP, once a guardian of grammar and proper word usage, now allows they, them, there as a singular and or gender neutral pronoun. So the Associated Press is happy to change the plain grammatical meaning of words to promote an agenda. They is singular and up is down. Interestingly enough, John Caldera got fired from the Denver Post three weeks after writing this article. And it was specifically on his commentary on gender ideology and gender uh, grammar that the AP was using. Yeah, it really, it stopped being about actual journalism a long time ago. I think I've said before that the Watergate was the moment that was the death of journalism and what should have been one of the great acts of journalism, you know, to reporters who were determined to find the truth and ultimately ended up bringing down a president as a result. That then became the standard. The standard of journalism no longer became, we need to cover the stories and bring the facts and the truth and just the plain, hard facts of the case of every story to the American people and let them make their own conclusions. It then became, oh no, no, we have to go on an ideological crusade. We have to take down presidents. We have to advance our agenda. And that's what it became. That's what it has been for, for over 40 years now, almost 50 years now. What are the last bastions of good journalism that we have left is local news. If you want to find out just straight facts without any editorial in the regular news articles, you a lot of times have to look at local newspapers. And this is the Lufkin Daily News out of Texas. This is on July 8th, 2020. This is shortly after Trump gave his Mount Rushmore speech. The headline reads, editorial, out of left field, AP showed a liberal bias in its coverage of the Mount Rushmore event. We showed poor judgment in running it. So for those who don't recognize, a lot of, your, a lot of times the reason why there seems to be a liberal bias in your local paper is because your local paper is just running AP stories. Like the, That's right. The people yeah. at your local paper didn't actually write that story. So you may think, why is my local paper in this conservative area so left-leaning? Well, it's because they're just running the AP story. They just reprint it, and they put like AP in parentheses. Even Breitbart does that sometimes with some of their articles. More for the sake of like breaking news, they'll just repost word for word an AP article. So this editorial in the Lufkin Daily News said, we've, we've taken a battering in recent days for an Associated Press article about Trump's speech and fireworks show at Mount Rushmore Saturday that ran in our latest weekend edition. We deserve it. As a news organization, we pay a considerable amount to be members of the AP so that we can provide coverage of world, national, and regional events that may that may have some import here locally. While that relationship isn't going away anytime soon, we plan to do a better job making sure we edit their content to ensure opinion is never presented as fact. And so in this article, uh, and they should be commended for this, they point out how the AP just went crazy on their left-wing commentary on Trump's speech. And the reason for this is because the leftist progressives, they saw the death of George Floyd as their moment. They saw it as their moment to finally take the mask off. They could go full-blown progressive. They could go, you know, like you had an article coming out in the Los Angeles Times, an op-ed coming out in the Los Angeles Times right after George Floyd's death, demanding that we get rid of the national anthem that we shouldn't have a national anthem because that's anachronistic. They would have never dared, no one would have dared publish an op-ed like this in a prominent newspaper like the Los Angeles Times before the death of George Floyd. But they saw the Floyd riots as their moment to step forward, take the mask off and declare, you know, this is our time to have our social revolution. And this is the writers at the AP. This is basically what they were doing. This is why they just went absolutely crazy after Trump's speech. They wouldn't have dared do that. Like they were left-leaning, but they wouldn't have gone that far if it hadn't been for the death of George Floyd and the riots that went unchecked. Well, the AP recently got in a spat with Ron DeSantis. Think of the way this article is worded. This is by Brendan Farrington. DeSantis' top donor invests in COVID drug governor promotes. And he's talking about Regeneron. And he's talking about Citadel, the Chicago-based hedge fund run by Ken Griffin, who we covered whenever we talked about GameStop. Ken Griffin was the guy <laughs> who lost a bunch of money in that. But Ken Griffin and Citadel has donated $10.75 million to a potential committee that supports DeSantis, $5.75 million in 2018 and $5 million last April. And he points out it's not unusual that this guy 
Farrington, he points out it's not unusual for hedge funds to have a wide range of investments. He points out that BlackRock, which is primarily donated to Democratic candidates, has also donated substantially to Republicans, has a large holding in Regeneron as well, even more so than Citadel. So why is this a story? Why is this even a story? Why is he bringing up that Citadel has investments in Regeneron when BlackRock has greater investments and BlackRock donates primarily to Democrats? How is this even a story? Well, it's not. He's, re he's relying on people not to read the story and only read the headline. Which a lot of people do, especially on social media. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he points out how DeSantis ramped up the call for Floridians to seek out monoclonal antibody treatments in August as coronavirus cases spiked. And he talks about how he's promoted Regeneron over and over. And remember, Trump took Regeneron whenever he had coronavirus. While DeSantis has had a very public war of words with Democratic President Joe Biden about requiring masks in schools and other virus precautions, they both encourage monoclonal antibody treatments. A Regeneron treatment costs more than $1,000, while a vaccine costs about $25. So why is this even an article? Why is, this, why is he writing in this article? If Joe Biden supports monoclonal antibody treatments and DeSantis supports it, they're in agreement. This isn't even an issue. But it's all throughout this article, it's basically just a reason to write a hit piece written as news. Because this isn't an op-ed. This is supposed to be a news article basically showing – and, of course, he's accusing Ken Griffin of Citadel by donating to this PAC that donated to DeSantis. And because he holds investment in Regeneron, therefore, we're supposed to assume corruption here. Well, the casual reader, he's just going to read the, head, the headline, DeSantis' top donor invests in COVID drug governor promotes. Okay, well, this is an issue of, of corruption. This is similar to whenever they were accusing DeSantis of corruption because he was having vaccine the vaccinations at Publix. Publix donated to DeSantis. Vaccinations are going on at Publix. Therefore, DeSantis is corrupt, and this is an in-kind donation. Well, DeSantis' press secretary, Christina Pushal, retweeted it with the message, quote, drag them. And she later deleted it because she didn't want people to misunderstand and think that she was demanded that people, you know, send death threats or whatever. She, drag them basically just means uh, criticize it harshly. But uh, in a letter to DeSantis on Friday, the incoming AP CEO, Daisy uh, Ver Verassingham, Ver yeah, Verassingham, called on Governor DeSantis to end what she called harassing behavior by Pushal. So she, she's upset that his press secretary is defending him after he was attacked by one of her writers. Frashingham said that the reporter who wrote the story received threats and other online abuse. DeSantis responded to the AP Monday with a scathing letter of his own calling the story a baseless conspiracy theory that would lead some to decline effective treatment for COVID infections. He wrote, quote, I assumed your letter was to notify me that you were issuing a retraction of the partisan smear piece you published last week. Instead, you had the temerity to complain about the deserved blowback that your botched and discredited attempt to concoct a political narrative has received. He defended a staff member and said, quote, you succeeded in publishing a misleading clickbait headline about one of your political opponents, but at the expense of deterring individuals infected with COVID from seeking life-saving treatment, which will cost lives. Was it worth it? End quote. And this is so, this is so dangerous for the media. This is another thing they're not thinking about. When they make COVID a partisan issue, when the media, when the AP or any other news outlet makes COVID a partisan issue, what they're doing is they're discouraging their readers from going and seeking treatment that is being encouraged by Republicans that actually happens to work. So Regeneron, for instance, they're making Regeneron a partisan issue. A Democrat reads this article and he thinks, okay, I hate DeSantis. One of his top donors is invested in Regeneron and DeSantis is promoting Regeneron. Therefore, it must be a quack medicine that doesn't work. I'm not going to use it. And this is the point that DeSantis is making. Instead, the, a the AP's new CEO is more concerned about mean comments coming toward one of her writers. And she wanted DeSantis to come out and denounce his own 
press secretary probably wanted him to fire her instead of recognizing that her own outlet, because of its democratic bias, because of its left-leaning bias, could potentially cost people lives. And this is why it's so dangerous, because it, whenever you have a partisan media, you've got a lot of Republicans who haven't sought treatment, who haven't taken the coronavirus seriously, because they assume from the beginning that this is a democratic hoax, because the media has become so partisan that they don't trust anything they read in the media. This is why it's dangerous when you have a media that is run by a corporate cartel that is partisan toward one party or one side, and you don't have any objectivity, which is why I support big uh, – I would support a public option when it comes to media. I feel like that's the only way that you're going to right this ship. Exactly. When the media has done a lot to earn this criticism and has earned this skepticism, people who are skeptical of the virus and think it, that it isn't real or think that it's not a big deal, they, they think, oh, it's just more media hysteria to generate ratings, which a lot of times it is. The media does want ratings and nothing generates ratings better than hysteria, disaster, or political scandal or some combination of all three of those things. So for some good news, this is something uh, I definitely want to get back to when I saw it uh, break earlier this week. We haven't talked elections in a while. And this is another important development in the race for the U.S. Senate in 2022. We previously talked about the Ohio Senate race, where a hillbilly elegy author, J.D. Vance, has jumped in and I think is by far the best candidate. Polling, by the way, has improved in his favor. He is now the second highest polling candidate for that race for the Republican nomination, which is good. One of these seats, it needs to be said, the 2022 Senate map is not friendly for Republicans. It is very much to Republicans what the 2018 map was for Democrats. It is, yes, it's in the midterm of a president of the opposite party, but most of the seats, the overwhelming majority of the seats that are up are in major swing states, vulnerable swing states. Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, and very few Democrat seats up in seats in very few Democrat seats up in swing states or safe red states. Most of them are like the West Coast, California, Washington, Oregon, Northeast, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, New York, Vermont, Maryland. There's one seat that is up, that is held by a Democrat, that is seen as a pickup opportunity for Republicans. And that is the seat that more than likely was stolen by voter fraud last year. And that is Georgia. That is the seat held by the extremely radical, arguably black nationalist pastor, Raphael Warnock, who took it after uh, the previous Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson had resigned, and he was replaced by the appointed uh, Kelly Loeffler, who was appointed by Governor Brian Kemp, who was a terrible candidate. And I think we both knew from the start she was a terrible candidate and was going to lose, and she lost. And maybe she did lose legitimately because she was a bad candidate. And he, because that was the special election to fill the remainder of Isaacson's term, there is another election for that same seat next year in 2022. Loeffler herself has floated a bid, but has not announced yet. David Perdue, initially the other senator from Georgia who was defeated in the concurrent regular Senate election last year, he was defeated by John Ossoff, who I call uh, the Georgia equivalent of Beto O'Rourke. He initially filed some paperwork to run, but then withdrew. So it's kind of a scattershot field. But there's one potential candidate that President Trump repeatedly asked to run. He endorsed him early on, even before he announced, and said, oh, he would be a total winner. This guy knows all about winning. He would win the seat. And that is college football legend Herschel Walker, who, fun fact, and this probably is the origins of his associations with President Trump, which I'm familiar with, 
he was a competitor on the second season of Celebrity Apprentice way back in the day. So that's one of the earliest connections. Quite a few people from that Celebrity Apprentice circle who went on to support Trump. You know, Piers Morgan was one example. Even though Piers Morgan is notoriously left-wing, he was the winner of the very first season of Celebrity Apprentice. So he and Trump are good friends. Totally not related at all. But Herschel Walker is a good guy. He is widely considered the greatest college football star of all time. He is currently serving as one of the co-chairs of the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition. He was appointed to that seat in 2018 by President Trump and is still currently serving to this day. It's one of those presidential appointments that can't just be undone by an ex-president. It's a fixed term, so he is still serving under Joe Biden as well. Um, he is African-American, and that is seen as another one of the huge boosts to his profile because obviously he played in Georgia at the University of Georgia when he was in college. And now he has, as of this week, he announced that he has filed paperwork to run for that Senate seat. So this is a really big deal for a number of reasons. I mean, first off, you look at the polling. Polling for the primary overwhelmingly shows him as the favorite. And this is crucial. Some of the early polling shows that he is the only Republican candidate who has a shot at beating Raphael Warnock. So there was one poll that was conducted by the Democratic-leaning firm Public Policy Polling, which ultimately had him down by just two points against Warnock in a head-to-head -head matchup. That is within the poll's 3.9% margin of error. The next highest Republican candidate, Georgia State Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black, is down by eight points, which is just outside the margin of error. And previously, the Trafalgar Group, which had become known as one of the most accurate pollsters in the entire country after both the 2016 and 2020 elections, they showed him as the only Republican who would beat Warnock, beating him by two points, 48 to 46, in a head-to-head -head matchup, while Kelly Loeffler would lose by five points, and former congressman and candidate for Senate last year, Doug Collins, would lose by a single percentage point. So this is a really big deal, and I remember looking at the media coverage when he announced, even before he announced, when there was speculation he would jump in, the media coverage. Uh, the one consistent talking point you will see repeated by the media and the left, but I digress based on the topic we just talked about, is, quote, nightmare scenario. The, a spokesperson for the Georgia, the Democratic Party of Georgia described his candidacy, Herschel Walker's candidacy, as, quote, a nightmare scenario for Republicans. <laughs> and a few days ago, prior to that, CNN ran a headline saying... But on its own, supposedly, independent of that quote, said Herschel Walker's Senate candidacy is a nightmare scenario for Republicans. So you can tell when the fix is in, when a certain talking point is out, like we're not using illegal immigrant anymore. You, they circulate it out there and they're all repeating it. They're all saying the same thing. So that is the so that is the term they're using to describe it. But again, the polling seems to indicate otherwise. So that to me shows kind of like how the media is viciously attacking J.D. Vance. You can tell this is how there's you know, they're scared of him. Oh, they yeah. clearly yeah. are afraid of him. Otherwise, they wouldn't be bashing him. They wouldn't be bashing J.D. Vance. They wouldn't be bat They wouldn't have been bashing Donald Trump as heavily as they were. That's what they do when they are afraid of. Now, one issue they have raised, of course, is the fact that Walker has resided in Texas for most of his life. He went to college in Georgia, of course, but his residency is Texas. He did recently register to vote in Georgia prior to filing to run for candidacy here. I just have to point this out, though. That was totally not at all concern last year when, remember, both of the Georgia Senate elections, Georgia is one of the states that has this runoff rule where if no candidate in the initial election date in November gets above 50 percent, then it goes to a runoff election between the top two candidates. So then one or the other has to get a majority. That's what happened in both of these elections. So that was then delayed to January 5th. So remember, among others, Andrew Yang, the guy who ran for president for like five minutes off of I'm going to give $1,000 a month to everybody, <laughs> he literally tweeted that he and his wife were moving to Georgia, moving their residence to the state of Georgia so that they could vote and help the campaigns of Warnock and Ossoff. He tweeted that. And nobody, nobody batted an eyelash. Nobody said anything about that when Andrew Yang did it. And certainly, again, I've experienced with this as well in my former hometown district in California. It was the Congressional District 21, where Republican David Valadeo ran for re-election in 2018. 
And the Democratic nominee was a guy named T.J. Cox, who had lived in Maryland for his entire life up until a few months before the primary when he suddenly moved to California and ultimately registered to run. He didn't even register to vote in time, though. He could not vote for himself in the election because he wasn't registered to vote in the state of California. But he ended up winning the election, and he served one term before he was narrowly voted back out in a rematch in 2020. Nobody cared then either. So, of course, if they get to do this, the Democrats absolutely commit. This is blatant voter fraud that they have done frequently, and their presidential candidates and failed candidates for mayor of New York City like Yang can tweet about it, and they'll be celebrated for it. And, oh, yeah, he's helping the cause. But then when a Republican does it, they freak out and say, oh, this is voter fraud, this is clearly voter fraud, even though the same people will tell you voter fraud doesn't exist. So really weak attacks overall. Walker does seem to be the favorite to win the primary. He has, uh, obviously he has been endorsed by Trump, which is a huge deal. So I think this is good news and that increases the chances of retaking the Senate just a little bit more. Well, used to, if you go back five years, uh, even three years, Georgia was not a, um, a safe Democratic state. Like it oh, was not at all. You wouldn't see Trafalgar Group appointing to any Republican losing to any Democrat. It was a safely red state, so much so that, uh, that the Trump campaign poured a lot more resources into North Carolina and Florida than it did Georgia. And uh, the, one of the main reasons why Georgia is has become not only a swing state but almost a lean Democrat state is because of the next topic we're going to talk about, which is our main topic today, immigration. So – Immigrate, if you've ever been to the Atlanta area, you can see the effects of immigration. That area is just growing by leaps and bounds. They're, they've got building projects. I mean, they're building subdivision after subdivision, a town home, an apartment complex after apartment complex. And ordinarily, we would look at this as a positive development. Okay, a city is growing. That's good. It's expanding. But the people moving into those new homes, those new neighborhoods, are not Americans, they're foreigners. Almost all of them are foreigners. Now, Atlanta has seen a lot of growth from a lot of Americans from other cities who have moved into the downtown area. And this, some of them have moved into the exurbs. But a lot of the suburbs around Atlanta are filling up with foreigners who are coming here specifically for a role that America, that Wall Street has designated for them. And that is to fill low-skilled, low-paying jobs that a lot of Americans could really use. Now, one of the reasons why... We in every conservative nationalist supports limiting both illegal and legal immigration is because most of the time, most of these legal immigrants are low-skilled workers who come take up fast food jobs, retail jobs, wait staff jobs, uh, construction jobs, stuff that does not require a lot of pre-known skill. In other words, jobs that you can learn just like that on the job. Without You can show up, and within a couple of weeks, you're proficient in your ta the task that you need to do. Those jobs are – that is the way that a lot of Americans for – for going back to whenever we first had fast food restaurants, when we first had a lot of the modern technology that we have now that allows low-skilled people to move up, that's how a lot of people have gained upward mobility. They would start – you know, you've, we've heard the story about someone in our hometown. They started out as a 16-year-old flipping burgers, and by the time they were 40, they were a millionaire. And it was because it was through sheer work ethic. They showed up on time. They worked hard. They stayed late. They worked overtime. They saved their money. They started a business. They got ahead. That it was part and parcel of the American dream. Well, if you've got a situation where corporations are supporting open borders, and when I say open borders, I don't mean for illegal immigration. I mean for legal immigration. Then a lot of that portion of the American dream isn't available to Americans because none of those companies are going to hire American workers. Well, one of the ways in which the Biden administration has undermined a lot of the progress that was made in raising Americans' wages 
was in allowing all of those immigrants who were just waiting at the border, hoping for a Biden presidency, to come in unchecked. If you remember, in 2018, we had massive caravans who were being sponsored by American NGOs who were coming through Mexico, marching to the border. They were pouring over by the hundreds of thousands. The way Trump got them stopped was in 2019, he threatened to put tariffs on everything coming out of Mexico if they didn't sit down and agree to a deal. One of the, well, the, agree, they, the, uh, the deal that they agreed to was the Remain in Mexico policy, whereby anyone claiming asylum had to wait on that side of the border until their case came up. They could then cross the border. Their case would be heard. If they were denied, they would have to go home. Well, the previous policy under Obama and at the beginning of the Trump administration was to just catch them and house them. If you didn't have anywhere to house them, you had to release them. And then just set a court date. Hey, if you want to show up, you can show up. And this is why in the in the debate, whenever Biden and Trump were debating whether or not people were going to show up, Biden was saying, yeah, people will show up to their court date. And Trump said, no, you're not going to show up unless you have a really low IQ. Like you're led into this rich country. You can go work and get a job and you've got a court date six months from now. Okay, if you show up at that court date and you're denied, you could potentially be thrown out of the country. And now your potential to make $12 an hour instead of $3 an hour goes out the window. So no, no one with a brain in their head is going to show up to these court hearings. They're just going to fit into the American society and work under the table. Well, there haven't been many white pills under the Biden administration. but That's putting it lightly. But we recently had one. One that not only affects this major issue of immigration, but also comes courtesy of an institution that has more often than not, sadly, failed us. Well, one of the reasons why people showed up and voted for Trump, even though they couldn't stand Trump's infidelity, they couldn't stand Trump's comments, the evangelical crowd. Well, not just them, a lot of uh, a lot of respectable high church Protestant uh, Republicans uh, who especially people on the in the Northeast Coast, people around the DC area, they showed up and they voted for Trump and they got Trump elected because of the courts. They That's knew right. that despite Trump's foul mouth, despite his vulgarity, despite his, his infidelity and his shortcomings, his mean tweets, he had outsourced the, his court nominees to the Federalist Society, and they trusted the Federalist Society. That was one of the huge that was one of the biggest selling points of Trump 2016, because a lot of Republicans who were turned off by Trump knew that they could trust him to keep his word on nominating people that were approved by the Federalist Society. And he saved not only the seat of Antonin Scalia, of course, which Republicans in the Senate had to keep open for a whole year, but he did smash records for, I think, like over 200 federal judges all across the country confirmed to various circuit courts and appeals courts and whatnot. And of course, ultimately confirmed three SCOTUS nominees, which was the highest amount for any single presidential term since I think Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no one better to read this story about the Supreme Court coming through, coming in clutch on the Remain in Mexico policy than a leftist. So this is a, this is an op-ed in MSNBC entitled Trump's Remain in Mexico policy is back to make asylum harder. The post-Trump federal courts will be a hurdle blocking humane immigration policy for decades. On his first day as president, Joe Biden issued a slate of executive orders to reverse some of his predecessor's most damaging policies. Remember, this is what the first thing Biden did. He's immediately put pen to paper and he signed like 15 executive orders trying to undo every single last thing of the Trump legacy that he possibly could. He completely like blew out records for the highest amount of executive orders signed in like the first 100 days, I think. Like even FDR didn't sign that many. Yeah, he was and he was sending a message to progressives that I am your guy because there were a lot of progressives who were very skeptical of Joe Biden. He was basically trying to send a message to the Bernie bros who were far left on social issues. I am your guy. I'm going to do everything short of abolishing ICE. And he succeeded for the first six months, six to eight months. But uh, th as this op-ed points out, 
Now Biden's administration is being forced to restart one of the worst of them, of these policies of Trump, a sign of how former President Donald Trump's racism could linger over the U.S. for a very long time. Remain in Mexico was one of the most successful anti-immigration ploys from professional brown person hater and all-around white supremacist goal Stephen Miller, who was Trump's senior domestic policy advisor. When it was implemented in 2019, the policy flouted international law requiring tens of thousands of people seeking asylum in the U.S. to wait for their eventual immigration hearings on the southern side of the border. What flouted international law? America is international law. Yeah, we I'm decide international law. I'm pretty sure it's against international law to illegally immigrate to another country. Just saying. Well, even if it isn't, I mean, we have the we are the world superpower. We decide international law. If we wanted to break international law, who's going to stop us? Yeah, if international law says no more guns, what are what are they going to do about yeah, it? What's that, the UN with their little blue helmets going to do about <laughs> it? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what is Luxembourg going to send over troops to make us stop? <laughs> Given the intense backlog in the immigration court system and the growing violence at these border town checkpoints, it's easy to see why Democrats denounce the policy as cruel. With an executive order suspending the policy while it was under review, Biden put the kibosh. What the hell is kibosh? He put the kibosh on remain in Mexico on January 20th. Is that a... You got me. Is I, that a I, Yiddish word? I don't, I don't know. It's... it's I, I honestly don't know. That's... Uh, he just assumes... This author just assumes we know what that means. I mean, if you're going to write an article in English, write it in English. <laughs> the Department of Homeland Security announced in June that it was pulling the plug on the Migration Protection Protocols, or MPP, as the program is officially known for good. But in April, a few weeks before DHS's announcement, Texas and Missouri, for some reason, <laughs> he puts in parentheses, for some reason, like we can't figure out why they would file a lawsuit. They filed a lawsuit arguing that the White House hadn't considered the impact on states before it 86th the policy. The MPP program was, I mean, I got to give him credit. He's got, he's got some, a few good one-liners, a few good zingers. The MPP program was designed to address the migration crisis by diminishing incentives for illegal immigration, weakening cartels and human smugglers, and enabling DHS to better focus its resources on legitimate asylum claims. U.S. District Judge Matthew J. Kaczmarek decided that uh, they were in the right, and he ruled on August 13th that Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas had failed to show a reasoned decision for pulling the plug on the policy. So he ordered that the program be reinstated. Well, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals also denied the Justice Department's request to further delay Kaczmarek's decision during the appeal process, which sent it to the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court recently came through and also denied the administration's request for a stay and ruled Tuesday night that the lower court's decision had to enter into effect, and it gave uh, the it gave the Biden administration 24 hours to reimplement the Remain in Mexico policy. And that, by the way, was a 6-3 decision, courtesy of these six conservative justices, including John Roberts and all three of President Trump's appointees. They wrote, uh, Justice Alito wrote, quote, the applicants have failed to show a likelihood of success on the claim that the memorandum rescinding the migrant protection protocols was not arbitrary and capricious. Now, this is key. He put in the words arbitrary and capricious. Where have we heard those or that term from? I do believe that was also the wording used when judges previously determined that Trump could not end the DACA program. Yes, correct. So whenever the Supreme Court ruled on that, you have people who just, again, they read the headlines, they don't read the articles, and they saw Supreme Court rules against Trump's rescinding of DACA. So they assume, okay, the, Trump, the Supreme Court ruled that DACA is constitutional. No, the Supreme Court is kind of like with the ACA. Ju uh, Judge Roberts ruled on a technicality that legalized the ACA. That it was technically a tax, not a uh, – uh, yeah, yeah. no, he ruled for in favor under the tax clause, not the commerce clause. Exactly, yeah, but liberals, they didn't – a lot of them didn't even pay attention. They thought he ruled under the commerce clause that it was constitutional. Well, it's the same thing with the DACA, uh, the thing that knocked down the, – you know, the ruling that knocked down Trump's recension of DACA. Well – 
it's a double-edged sword. If you can rule in a technicality that favors your side, the Supreme Court can use that same technicality to rule in favor of the other side. And now with Amy Coney Barrett on the court with a 6-3 majority, which they didn't have when they ruled against Trump on DACA, we now have the double-edged sword going the other way. This writer says two things stand out here. First, I'm sure conservative legal eagles were tickled that the order included the phrase, quote, arbitrary and capricious. The last time that phrase was used in majority immigration case before the court, it was part of a 5-4 decision. Again, it was 5-4. It wasn't 6-3 because right. Amy Coney Barrett wasn't on the court. Saving the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. I, it's just, this is uh, this is one of those times where it, you know the the lamenting the lamentation coming from the left is really is delicious. I mean, it's just it, uh, it really is enjoyable. Well, and the best part too is you know the left as a whole is not going to learn their lesson from this. This reminds me very much of what we talked about previously. How the left is unironically there are elements pushing for abolishing the filibuster mm -hmm. and getting rid of it because yep. they're so sick of the fact that the Senate is 50-50. And you have a handful of somewhat not insane Democrats like Kristen Sinema in Arizona, who's literally been shouting from the rooftops, idiots, if you abolish the filibuster, they're going to use that against us, just like when Harry Reid abolished the filibuster for judicial nominees back in 2013. And no one's listening to her. Well, the reason why the nobody's listening to her is because they're counting on demographic change to push the electorate far enough to the left where no Republican, the Republican Party will never gain a majority, which is what's happening in Georgia. So that's the reason why they're not listening, because they're assuming, okay, in a few years, White, white people are going to be under 55%. The Republican Party will never win the House and Senate again. Like the census data that we talked about last episode. Right, right. So the author goes on, turning that reasoning around and using it against Biden, even citing the DACA case in Tuesday's order, must have felt good for the five conservative justices not named Roberts. Also, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, let alone an expert on the Administrative Procedure Act, which is what the DACA ruling and this ruling are based on. It's a 94, an act in 1994. But what reasoned explanation was missing in the seven-page memo Mallorca's issued in June outlining the change aside from the anti-immigration talking points that Kaxmarek cited in his decision? Second and more troubling, the return of the, remain in, of the remain in Mexico policy shows the lasting impact of Trump's reshaping of the federal bench. Kaxmarek was one of the 170, 170 district judges that Trump appointed. According to a tally in January from the Pew Research Center, that cohort made up 27% of active district judges. Oh, the deliciousness is the, great. The, and these are lifetime appointments, ladies and yes, gentlemen. Yes, Pew also noted that 54 appeals judgeships were filled in Trump's four-year term, one fewer than former President Barack Obama confirmed in two terms. The Fifth Circuit, which denied Biden's request for a stay, has six active judges from the Trump era out of 15 total. Two of them joined the chief judge of the court who was appointed during, the Bush, during Bush's second term in drafting that denial. And, of course, Trump managed to get three Supreme Court justices, a third of the court confirmed. So th this is the thing. You know, a lot of people are are bashing Trump, saying Trump didn't accomplish anything. What good did it do to elect Trump? You know, he was a one-term president. He didn't get he didn't complete the wall. And but this is evidence. I mean, even having him in one term, he accomplished more on the judiciary side than Obama managed to accomplish in two terms. So, exactly. Yeah. So this is. I mean, this is a huge white pill. And as uh, as this guy points out, there's no quick fix to this. It'll be years, if not decades, before most of Trump's appointees retire. Right now, though, the courts that Trump shaped are safeguarding his most prized policies. These were put in place by Miller and other nativists who are fighting the browning of America, a fight that the latest census results shows they're losing. Unfortunately, because of our libel laws, because they're so loose, this is one area that we really do need to, to you know, put a stopgap in is our libel laws. Right. This is straight up libel. 
At no point have Stephen Miller or Donald Trump ever suggested that they're against the browning of America. They've never used that terminology. They've never even hinted at that. This is pure projection on the part of this author. This is something that these this is something that the left has done since Trump got elected. They've assumed that Trump is on a on a on a crusade to stop the quote unquote browning of America. If this I'm not I'm no expert on uh, British libel law, but I could guarantee you that this would be grounds for a libel suit in oh. Great Britain or any civilized country. Oh yeah, it's been said before. I mean, because the UK doesn't have a first amendment, there's obviously lots of cons with it, but a few pros with that. And one of the pros is that they have much stronger libel laws in the UK regarding the media, regarding government, regarding everything. Yeah, but I mean, even with the even with the First Amendment, you're not allowed to just libel somebody. We do have libel laws in America that allow you to sue somebody if they impugn your character. But doesn't don't you like have to prove that they knowingly lied when they said it? Like you, that's that's you, which how do you prove that? Well, you, you well, it's easy to prove if you have never made a statement. So in this in this instance because Donald Trump and Stephen Miller have never made any statement saying that they're against the quote-unquote browning of America because they've never hinted they've never explicitly said that, but because uh, the courts have been very loose in their interpretation of this toward the media. The media gets a special pass. Whereas if this was a corporate, you know, one corporate manager accused another corporate manager of something, then I'm sure they could probably sue him. But this is this is something like I'm not an expert on libel law in America, but this is something that should be plugged because Stephen Miller and Donald Trump should be able to sue this guy because of what he's writing. And especially Stephen Miller, because how many times have they called him a white supremacist? As some of how I called him a neo-Nazi. He's Jewish. Like he could mm -hmm. easily use that right there to say, how dare you call me a neo-Nazi? That right there alone in Stephen Miller's case should absolutely be grounds for libel. But what's interesting is this guy who seems to be so obsessed with uh, people who want to stop the quote-unquote browning of America. His name is Hayes Brown. Oh, like, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> what, totally no, no what are the chances? coincidence there. That, that's such a coincidence. There's absolutely no relation between that and his distaste for their ideology. And it's actually funny you mentioned, you know, the, the federal judiciary, how it is it works both ways. For those of you who don't know, I don't think we talked about this on The Right Take, but DACA itself is in serious trouble right now. After having bounced around in the courts, and again, kind of like Obamacare, it was ultimately ruled in favor of by the Supreme Court by a technicality. It was very recently ultimately put on indefinite hold by another federal judge, Judge Andrew Hannon of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas, who on July 16th ruled that the implementation of the program was unconstitutional and ultimately blocked all new applications to the program. It did not affect prior or current applicants, but it said no more new applicants can apply. And that is currently on hold. That case, I don't know if that case is going to work its way up to the Supreme Court or not, but that is basically indefinitely on hold. So just like that, again, it absolutely, like you said, it's a double-edged sword. It can work both ways. But right now it is in these few cases where it does work in our favor, it is so, so delicious. But see, the the left's idea of, of court's jobs is to rule in favor of justice. And of that, the Constitution. Yeah, not the Constitution, just justice. Like stand up for justice, and justice means whatever they dis whatever they determine justice to mean. It, they don't believe, they don't understand. This is why they weren't paying attention when the Supreme Court ruled on DACA, how it ruled on a technicality, mm -hmm. because they're just looking at okay, well, this is the just thing, and this is the right thing to do. This is why whenever the Supreme Court was ruling on the ACA, people were were basically telling the Supreme Court and uh, demanding the Supreme Court uphold it because of all the people that would lose their health care coverage. Same way whenever Amy Coney Barrett was being confirmed, Democrats were bringing up sob stories about individuals who had gained health insurance through the ACA. Well, if you're a judge, that's irrelevant. 
Exactly. That's not the point. It doesn't matter how many people are going to lose their coverage based on your ruling. You rule based on the law. This isn't a charity. This is a federal court. Exactly. This isn't a philanthropy here. This is something the courts, the judge's job is to rule based on the Constitution and the law. If the if Congress passes a law that helps people, that is a positive law, but is unconstitutional, it's a judge's job, job to strike that law down. It doesn't matter if people lose their health coverage. It doesn't matter if people die because of it. It's the judge's job to uphold the Constitution. It's the, mm-hmm. it's Congress's job to write laws that are constitutional. If a if the Congress can't do that, then they can't pass the law. It's up to the state legislatures to pass the law. If the state legislatures don't want to pass the law and people don't benefit, look, it's not Congress's job. This is why we have separation of powers. But people on the left, they don't believe in the constitutionalism. They don't believe in separation of powers. They just believe in justice. Everyone should have justice, equality. And they don't care how we get there or how it happens. They just want everyone to do the right thing. And you can't really – this is why we don't really have a serious country because you have half the country that believes in the rule of law. You have the other half of the country that doesn't believe – that believes in the rule of law when it aligns with their sensitivities on justice. They believe in equity. You know, they believe in equity over you know constitutional rights basically. Yes, exactly, exactly. But on the point of immigration, this is, this is the biggest victory that we've seen. During the Biden administration, this is something that the Supreme Court has been pretty consistent on is immigration. We can point to Gorsuch's failing with civil rights law, for instance, last year of expanding the definition of the Civil Rights Act, which was egregious. But on immigration, the court has been pretty uh, pretty consistent. In March, they ruled against the expansion of the program that allowed temporary status for um, for asylum seekers. That's right. They ruled that once your temporary status has expired, you're done. You can't automatically extend it. There was another illegal alien who was set to be deported. He filed based on another sob story. The Supreme Court ruled – threw it out, didn't even hear it. And now you have this case where they ruled that um, based on the same logic they ruled against Do- or against Trump on DACA, they ruled against Biden on the issue of remaining policy. And what's interesting is the Biden Department of Justice – or Department of Homeland Security, the arguments they were using were pure emotional. They were arguing that this is going to hurt the people who are going to have to wait on the other side of the border. That's not the that, – that is of no concern to the Supreme Court. It's of no concern to the Supreme Court what happens to these people who have to wait on the other side of Mexico any more than it's their, their concern what happens to them or Americans who are impacted by the presence in the United States. It's the Supreme Court's job to rule based on the law. But just on the, on the practical implications of this, the Biden administration is saying – Mallorca is saying that they are going to comply with it. Now, they are, they are going to appeal. They haven't had the full hearing yet. But because it was a 6-3 decision, even if Roberts defects, I'm pretty sure the other five conservative justices aren't going to rule against the remaining policy once they exactly. go to the full hearing. But just on the practical implications of this, as we mentioned last time, as you read the stats off, we've had over 1 million people come in through the as claim asylum since Biden became president, over a million. That's more people typically than we have an entire year immigrate to the United States. I mean think about that. Just these people that are claiming asylum, we've had more of them in the past seven months than we typically have an entire year through legal immigration. This is going to change. This is obviously going to drop that down dramatically if the Biden administration follows through, if the court makes them follow through and stop this, you know, re-implement the Remain in Mexico policy. Now, what this is going to do for Americans is going to allow their wages to rise because – which is necessary, especially right now with inflation and whatnot. Yeah, because all these people coming in, the NGOs that are sponsoring these people, think about it. It's, it's kind of it, – it comes full circle. These NGOs are sponsored by corporations. They're sponsored by Wall Street. Wall Street pays NGOs to help migrants come to the United States. The migrants then fill jobs for these corporations for Wall Street, and Wall Street doesn't have to raise the wages. They're basically just buying slaves. 
That's all they're doing. They're paying NGOs to send slaves their way so they can work for wages that are below what the going car, uh, what the going rate is. Mm-hmm. Right now, a fast food worker in Idaho starts out, and this is rural Idaho, starts out at $16 an hour flipping burgers. $16 an hour. If you're on the low end of the spectrum, if you're way out there in the in the boonies, you might have to start out at fourteen dollars an hour. Might have to. That the, you have to negotiate for that. And the reason for that is because it's just Americans. Those fast food restaurants, if they want workers, they have to American workers. Now, if they had a bunch of low skilled foreigners coming in, that wage would drop to ten dollars an hour. And then none of the Americans that are working fast food who don't have the skills to go work for a tech company or go work for you know some high-skilled job that requires a college degree. Be an engineer or something. They would be out of work. They would be unemployed. Many of them would be on the streets living homeless. They would be begging. They'd be, or, or they'd just have to move in with family members. Their quality of life would go down. They wouldn't be able to marry and have kids. That's not even taken into account the ethnic tension that's created when you mix ethnicities and you bring a bunch of people into the country and the resentment that's created among Americans. Plus the resentment that's created a lot among a lot of these foreigners who were – many of them were doctors, lawyers in their country. They come here. But they're they, not educated by the standards of our country. So they may have been doctors in their country, but right, that but, doesn't fly for doctors in our country. But they were expect, they were used to being treated as elites in their country. They mm-hmm. come here. They have to take on a menial task, and then they resent Americans not giving them the respect they were given in their country. And it just – and then, they, of course, they join the left in accusing white people of being racist. And it just – it creates a vicious cycle of resentment, and the only people who've been Benefit is Wall Street. The only people who benefit are the corporations and, of course, Democrats. Democrats, this is why Democrats, this is why Wall Street has gotten to bed with Democrats. This is something I feel like conservative media is not paying enough attention to, and there's a reason for that. A lot of conservative media is still in the pockets of Wall Street. A lot of conservative media is still on the side of Christy Nome when it comes to corporations. And it pays to focus more on the sensational stuff that distracts from the core issues that are affecting us here at home. Like an aspect that is not being, it is being talked about a little bit, but not as much as a fallout of Afghanistan is the coming possible Afghan refugee crisis Mm -hmm. that we're going to be seeing thousands and tens of thousands. Reports already that the Biden regime is evacuating more Afghan refugees from Afghanistan right now than American citizens. Even with thousands of Americans who in five days from the time of this recording, in five days, if they're not out, they will officially be behind enemy lines if they are not evacuated. So, well, Wall Street isn't demanding that those Americans come work for their corporations. They're demanding that cheap labor come work for their corporations. Yeah, and as we mentioned as in a previous episode, in the episode titled uh, Nation of Warring Immigrants, it's not even necessarily the mixing of ethnicities itself. It's the fact that these are all first-generation immigrants. It's the fact that these people still are so closely connected to the identities of their homeland. You know, a Nicaraguan immigrant is still going to see themselves as Nicaraguan. Mm-hmm. They're not going to see themselves as American. They're still going to speak their native language. They're going to see themselves as a Nicaraguan or a Guatemalan living in the United States, not I am a new United States citizen. And, yeah, and it's not a matter of stopping the browning of America. It's a matter of, of making sure that corporations have to give their jobs to American citizens because what's the point of keeping jobs in America and stopping outsourcing if you're just it, yeah, bringing in immigrants? Yeah, or India. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're just bringing in – if you're bringing the foreign workers to work here, what's the difference than having those corporations go work there? It's not benefiting American citizens at all. And it's not about the – we would we would be against this immigration if these people were coming from Albania or Macedonia. It doesn't matter. Their skin color doesn't matter. It's or Germany. Fact, yeah, any, anywhere, anywhere. Like if they were if they were poor, you know, if they, if poor Russians coming into the country and working <laughs> these jobs. We don't need – we don't need we, – we have far too much – we need to slash our immigration levels Period. at least in half. At preferably by 60 to 80 percent. 
because and across all nations, not a ban on any particular countries. Like, you know, not banning seven is Islamic nations, but banning like literally every. Yes, nation. yes, because if you did that, you would see wages among American citizens. We talk about wealth inequality in this country. The wealth, the wealth gap in this country would diminish significantly if you did that. You would see, you would see low skilled workers. You'd see their wages shoot up immediately in middle high America. school education yeah with the high school education people with high school education who can't get those good paying factory jobs because they don't exist anymore instead of working twelve dollars an hour and hopping from fast food restaurant to fast food restaurant they would be able to settle down at one restaurant and make 25 dollars an hour and be able to support a family off that exactly or mechanics and as president trump said the one ethnic group in the united states that suffers the most from immigration legal and illegal alike that suffers the most economically are African-Americans. You know, yeah, this, this yeah exactly. So absolutely, this this is good news. And as you pointed out, we are only seven months in. And if this track record is anything to go off of, Biden is about to face a lot of headaches, courtesy of the Supreme Court and other federal courts. And especially coming up, I think next year, the Supreme Court is going to hear a major abortion case. I know this isn't related to immigration, but this could be a landmark decision. I think it's a, a state law out of Mississippi, I believe, that will uh, potentially that the lawsuit that has been filed and will ultimately go to the Supreme Court could see a complete reversal of Roe v. Wade in the sense that the court could rule, 6354, however, that states, that is a states' rights, 10th Amendment states' rights issue to make their own laws on abortion. So that would be a huge deal. The absolute meltdown. You talked about like the meltdown and the sweet, you know, salty tears of the left courtesy of this ruling. Oh, the tears that would come out of a ruling overturning Roe v. Wade would be <laughs> delicious. On that much happier note, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take, episode number 35. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow our content at righttakepodcast.com. All of our podcast platforms and social media platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And be sure to support us if you are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.